Hello and welcome to the DevEye Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Perone, and here I decode engineering experts behind some of the most complex, high-performing, and scalable stacks to find out what technologies they love and use, what challenges they face, and what the real life is like behind the code. Today on the DevEye Podcast. It's a scalability thing, and when I say scalability, I don't necessarily mean software scalability. It's also human scalability. It's like scaling an engineering organization. How does that happen? How do you how do you architect or design systems such that you can throw more engineers at it and everyone is still just as efficient? Well, the fact that it's running on a 32-bit integer of these uh, is a huge table. It had a lot yeah. of rows. They're trying to do an alter table in MySQL on a table that big. It locks up your database. It means that you stop being able to write to that database. We'll stop. Be fairly significant period of time. But that kind of leads to how do you then make MySQL scale? If you say, fine, we like the, the operational aspects of MySQL and the way engineers interact with MySQL, and that's easy to do, then how do you make MySQL scale for capacity and all of that? And that's where interesting challenges come right, in. Right, right. I would think long and hard about NoSQL. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's there are very good reasons to use it in right? lots mm-hmm. of use cases. But just using it as a silver bullet is, is incorrect. I don't believe it is a silver bullet. Mm-hmm. I don't believe there is such a thing as a silver bullet. All right, Monique, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You are a senior engineer at Square. Mm-hmm. You've been here for a few years now, right? That's correct, yeah. Uh, tell me how you made it to San Francisco. How I made it to San Francisco? Well, that, that's an interesting story. Um, I'm not a stranger to San Francisco, even though I'm relatively new here. Moved here uh, just uh, almost three years ago now. And uh, having worked at Red Hat for a good long time, I uh, used to travel to San Francisco a lot for conferences, for work, things like that. So I know the city reasonably well. And for San Francisco, where, where were you? In London, sorry. Okay. Yes, very good. Yes, based out of London, uh, traveling here a lot for work and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, when an opportunity came around to actually move here, I figured, why not? Very good. Next, next phase in the adventure. Very good. All right. And what was the motivation to join Square? Um, Square had some interesting challenges when I joined. Interesting challenges in scalability and reliability. Trying to, uh, trying to grow up as a company, moving away from the original experiment that was Square into a proven experiment now that we are building to scale. So there were some interesting challenges in, in helping a company grow through those, uh, those phases. Okay, all right. Um, if we can just walk back in time before you joined Square, mm-hmm. what was your first experience coding like? My first experience coding? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, well, there, there are many of them. Um, this particular story was basically back in, back in high school. So I grew up in Sri Lanka and in Sri Lanka, Wow. Okay. Uh, in the mid '90s, there was um, uh, we didn't really have proper access to the internet or computer games that were happening in the rest of the world, in the Western world. And there was this buddy of mine. I use the term buddy quite loosely. This chap at school who had a friend or a cousin or somebody in in America who would send him computer games on floppy disks. He would copy them out and uh, share them around um, with everyone in school. But he would password protect them and encrypt them. Mm-hmm. And he would just use it as a form of uh, uh, showmanship that, that he had the keys to everyone's computer games. And uh, yeah, he wouldn't basically share, he wouldn't share those keys around very easily. So I remember actually writing something, a, a fake computer game, essentially a Trojan horse. It looked like this new computer game he hadn't seen before. 
and it stole all the keys from his uh, from his computer. <laughs> all right. <laughs> nice. Okay. It was kind of fun. Very good. All right. And um, after you moved to London, you went to school, of course. Um, what was your what was your journey like career wise before you joined Square? Prior to Square, um, I started at a consultancy in London, um, building well distributed systems, highly available systems. Um, e-commerce was becoming very, very popular, late 90s, early 2000s, um, and yeah, I was building a lot of that. Java application servers were becoming a thing, they were becoming popular and widely used. Uh, found a niche over there that worked really well for me, and from that I ended up uh, contributing a lot to open source and uh, joined mm-hmm. the JBoss project. Right. Uh, contributed to JBoss quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, up until at one point, so I got an email from someone at JBoss saying, you're contributing all these patches and stuff, why don't you just do this full time for us? Nice. That was my first job in open source, and uh, that was like a dream come true. Wow, okay. Uh, yeah, and then that led to JBoss being acquired by Red Hat, and uh, mm-hmm. a, a wonderful career at Red Hat for a good long time. I have so many questions about open source. Um, before we get to that, mm-hmm. what have been some of the craziest uh, back-end development challenges that you've experienced here at Square? At Square? Uh, at Square, challenges have been plentiful. Like I said, trying, watching a company grow from an experiment, a prototype that, that grew very quickly and got very popular very fast through to making that scale as a proper company and now a public company as well, mm-hmm. uh, the challenges have, have, been, have been plentiful for sure. Um, I think one of the most interesting things, challenges we face, we still face this even today, is trying to right-size our back-end architecture. So we kind of went from one extreme, which was a monolith, and everything was one application, mm-hmm. to hang on, monoliths are bad, this isn't going to scale with new lines of business and new products and things like that, so microservices everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that leads to another problem, which is the spider web of connections, uh, and, and it makes it very, very complicated, very difficult to understand, very difficult for new engineers to onboard, mm-hmm. uh, through to now we're trying to figure out what the right answer is, what is that right balance, I mean, a series of mini monoliths, perhaps. What is the decision-making process that, that you take into place between deciding if you should use monoliths versus microservices? Um, it's, it's a scalability thing. And when I say scalability, I don't necessarily mean software scalability. It's also a human scalability thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the problems we've always seen with monoliths is that with a growing number of engineers committing to the same code base, they're trampling over each other quite a lot, mm-hmm. despite best intentions. And having a single deploy, a single code base that goes out with tens of or even hundreds of commits from different people around the company trying to work on different features, you, you end up stomping on each other quite often. Mm-hmm. A, a break in one part of the system takes the entire system down for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's not very nice. You end up having to roll back multiple people's work over multiple days sometimes. So true. And that doesn't scale. Um, so they, right. when, I, when I talk about scalability, I mean, yes, there are uh, software scalability problems as well. Yeah to do with traffic and load and capacity and all of that, but also a human scalability thing. Human scalability. Nice. Okay. It's like scaling an engineering organization. How does that happen? How do, you, how do you architect or design systems such that you can throw more engineers at it and everyone is still just as efficient? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Yeah. Great. Um, we talked earlier about uh, running out of database IDs at one point, right? We did, yes. What uh, happened? That's, that's an um, amusing story about one of the monoliths that I mentioned. Small problem, right? It's a small problem, yes, yes. Yeah, very uh, small, yeah. It's the whole uh, Bill Gates thing, right? 64K should be enough for everyone, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, this, this is kind of akin to that where a system was designed with 32-bit database IDs and 
we were very close to running out, and that was a scary situation. Okay. Um, did it happen at a time that it was some kind of like uh, bad time of the year, or was it just did it happen at a not I midnight mean, at night, or was it like was it convenient <laughs> or inconvenient? We didn't actually run out. We we managed to solve the problem before it ran out. But we detected that it was going to, and it was a problem that was looming on the horizon. Mm -hmm. um, I think we picked up on it when we had a few months of runway left, mm -hmm. a few months of runway to go. Um, so it was, still, it was still fairly close. We, mm -hmm. we didn't have a lot of time to come up with a solution. Uh, solutions are non-trivial for something like this, especially if you're talking about a monolith which has grown organically over a few years. The original authors of that monolith aren't around to consult. They moved on. Um, Stuff that's just been has grown so quickly that there has been no time to document it and all of that. Mm -hmm. So you're picking up on this large and complex code base that kind of does everything. It's mission critical here, mm -hmm. and it's going to run out of IDs, and you don't know who depends on those IDs, how they are exported, how they are interpreted. Um, this is at a stage where we had broken out some parts of that monolith into microservices. But they weren't properly thought out, in my opinion, as well, where database IDs were shared, for mm -hmm. example. And you didn't know where they were shared. You didn't know what formats they were shared in. Were they also being... Do you know who they were shared with? Uh, we could tell to some degree, but without diving into these multiple code bases, we didn't know how they were being treated. Yeah. Were they also being treated as 32-bit integers? Yeah. If so, you've got to go fix that as well. Or they've been coerced into a 64-bit int or a string or something else, in which case you've got a bit more runway there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not just fixing that database, but it's also fixing all the consumers of that data as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. and how they're treating it. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, having to, to, to make updates in lockstep, which is not, not easy at all. Um, another interesting part is the that table in particular in question, mm -hmm. oh, the fact that it was running on a 32-bit integer IDs, uh, is a huge table. It had a lot yeah. of rows. They're trying to do an alter table in MySQL on a table that big. It locks up your database. It means that you stop being able to write to that database full stop for a fairly significant period of time. Yeah, and that's not a trivial that. problem to it's do. It's not a trivial problem to do. So having to do that, uh, the, the kind of tooling we had to build around that to let that happen in chunks and stages and mm -hmm. all that was, was yeah, non-trivial. So what did you do? <laughs> Uh, essentially, we brute forced it. That was it. We ended up um, putting together a task force, a number of people who had mandates to go and commit to other people's code bases around the company, and we were able to analyze who was consuming that data, trace that down, make sure all the consumers now were safe, that they were all um, consuming or coercing IDs into 64-bit IDs or something else. If you were to re-architect that today, like knowing what, you, what, you, what kind of scale you're dealing with today, what would you have done differently? Oh, number. I mean, it's it's a bit hard to say what I would have done differently because it's an ultimate reality. Um, sure. If I was to rebuild it from scratch today, it would look extremely different. It would involve separate services and separate databases, possibly sharded databases. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really hard to tell at the time because it's growing organically. You don't know which new business feature you're adding in. Yeah. You don't know what additional data you're storing mm -hmm. at the time of designing the system. I suppose I, what I would have designed for is flexibility. So I would have built it in a manner that's modular enough that every new feature, even though it's in the same database, it could potentially be in a separate database mm -hmm. or it could potentially be a separate service as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, keeping those things in mind, basically. What kind of, like for someone who is starting, um, is building a, a database for scale today, 
what would you suggest they take a look at when they're architecting this? Um, a lot of people like NoSQL and move towards it, and that's been a thing a few years ago. It's mm-hmm. kind of quieted down a little bit now. Um, I actually know this more than most. I mean, I used to build a NoSQL database back at Red Hat. Yeah. Um, I still see a lot of value in MySQL, in good old-fashioned MySQL. It's easy to develop against. It's easy to reason with. It's very easy to hire for. People mm-hmm. know and understand MySQL. So then the question is, how do you make MySQL scale? And well, it's also actually, like... Sorry, go on, please. <laughs> uh, well, that kind of leads to how do you then make MySQL scale? If you say, fine, we like the, the operational aspects of MySQL, and the way engineers interact with MySQL, and that's easy to do. Um, then how do you make MySQL scale for capacity and all of that? And that's where interesting challenges right, come in. Right. Um, state of the art, I mean, yeah, you can shard things. There are lots of very good sharding libraries out there that mm-hmm. help. Um, it's something that we've tried to do at Squared to some degree. So we do shard a lot of our MySQL databases as mm-hmm. well. If you were to uh, face a similar challenge in the future, would you look at like a basket of SQL and NoSQL databases? And if so, which ones would you look at? Um, I, I, I would think long and hard about NoSQL. I mean, there's, there's a, there's, there are very good reasons to use it in, in mm-hmm. lots of use cases, but just using it as a silver bullet is, is incorrect. I don't believe it is a silver bullet. Mm-hmm. I don't believe there is such a thing as a silver bullet. Yeah. Um, as a result, I think that uh, as an engineer, you should think long and hard as to what your application needs. Does it? Yeah. If it actually doesn't need a NoSQL solution, you shouldn't just be using it just because. Yeah. Um, there are. I mean, there are cases here where we've been experimenting with with graph databases, and mm-hmm. that's mostly because it fits that data model particularly well. And trying to you, trying to apply that same data model into MySQL is non-trivial. Mm-hmm. So it made sense to do that. There are other cases where we use things like HBase and and Hadoop, sorry. And again, for things like MapReduce jobs, for certain types of searches, it makes sense. But by and large, it's still far, far easier just to use MySQL for right. applications. Yeah. Uh, do you think that uh, open source is overtaking a lot of the pure vendor-oriented database offerings that are out there today? I think open source is generally on a very, very positive trajectory, not just in mm-hmm. databases, but in app servers and operating systems and pretty much so everything. True. And uh, yeah, it's got an extremely bright future. But of course, I'm very biased. My background is in open source. Yeah. I've had a very successful open source project and a very successful open source career at Red Hat. Yeah. And um, yeah, you're, you're obviously talking to someone who is biased about that. Yeah, yeah. goes both ways. <laughs> um, what kind of open source uh, technologies do you see out there that you think are hot or are, are trendy? Um, since we're the subject of databases, I would say CockroachDB is a very interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been somewhat involved in the project, or have been in the past, not mm-hmm. so much uh, more recently. Um, it's a little ways off, but I want to keep my eye on that. I think that has the possibility to to really change the way we think about storage. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's uh, it's an interesting project. It's an interesting project which gives you a distributed, strongly consistent database across multiple nodes. Mm-hmm. It still gives you a, a SQL interface on top of it, mm-hmm. so it looks and feels like MySQL. Interesting. But it is, and it's, and it's strongly consistent as well, so it will give okay. you transactions and things like that. The, the, the sort of high-level constructs that makes developers' lives easier. Mm-hmm. You don't have to think about uh, trying to, about, you don't have to, as a developer, you don't have to deal with the edge cases of eventual consistency or right. trying to write MapReduce jobs instead of a simple SQL query, which you know how to do really well. Yeah. So yeah, it gives you the best of both worlds. Uh, built on some very interesting technology, um, built on 
ideas like Raft for, mm. for consensus. Okay. And uh, in, in terms of design, conceptually similar <laughs> to Google's Spanner, which is an internal mm -hmm. database of theirs. So yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's something I want to keep an eye on. It's, it's still young, it's still growing. Um, it, I, I wouldn't bet my company on it at this stage yet. But Would you bet your production workloads on it right now? Well, well, sorry, that's what I meant. I wouldn't bet my company's <laughs> production workloads on it. Not quite yet, but okay. uh, hopefully soon. I look Very forward good. to that. All right. Uh, any other challenges that you want to speak about that you had to face that were crazy? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I, I do think is quite interesting is, is um, complexity as companies grow. So API complexity. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you, you have a monolith that it's a fairly common pattern that, that companies start with. You have a monolith initially and then you start to break it up into lots of microservices and then you, mm -hmm. pretty often you go too far down that curve and you have too many services and now it's crazy and you can't remember where anything is anymore and yeah. you have overlapping services. They kind of do the same thing but ever so slightly different. Mm -hmm. And in some ways that's, that's a good thing. It means that organizations or parts of the organization aren't blocking on each other. They need to go and get something done, they're just going to go and do it. But mm -hmm. it means there's some degree of reinvention, and that's fine as well. To a certain degree, reinventing is faster than reusing, fine, I get it. Mm -hmm. But if they don't converge, you end up with this huge tech debt problem of this very confusing and hard, very, very hard to reason with set of services around the organization. We were talking about tech debt earlier. Well, mm -hmm. What does that actually mean to you? Um, oh, bane of my life. <laughs> <laughs> no, tech Tech debt is, is something that I wish as an industry we were better at dealing with. Um, and I understand why we're not. I mean, product-focused companies like Square and many others, your, your, your main goal is to build products for your customers, yeah. your external customers. But that often means that anything happening within your walls, you sweep under the carpet and you say, I'll deal with it later. Mm -hmm. uh, the story of those, those uh, database IDs is a classic case. Yeah. There's only so far you can kick a can down the road before that can gets so damn big, you're going to stub your toe on it. Yeah. And they really have to do something. And often it's far more expensive and far more damaging and far more difficult to do it when you're up against the wall. It's a problem because it's never. It's not. It's not something that you want to do, but you need to to to, to well, do I, it, right? I, I don't know about that. I think people actually want to do it. I think um, engineers care about code hygiene and, and yeah. cleanliness, and they actually do want to to uh, have that time to clean stuff up. But it's just often with business pressures, you don't have the time to do that. And it's how do we make sure we give us give ourselves the time to do that? We we sort of. Um, um, create that time saying every time you see anything that is a problem you're not going to hot patch it or quick fix or mm -hmm. you know sweep things under the carpet or even if you do you do that with a very specific plan to revisit it at a later date and clean it up mm -hmm. and you propose that plan and you get them approved together mm -hmm. saying yes I will go and apply this hot patch right now but I also will come back in two months and do something else to properly clean it up. But when is when is the right time to focus on tech debt? When you're in like a, you're, you're in a fast growing startup, or you're in a fast growing mature startup, mm -hmm. there are tons of business pressures and demands. Yeah. So what are the conditions for when it makes sense to not only make the decision but to enforce the decision? So this is very startup centric, I suppose. But um, I feel that once you've got product market fit, you know what you're building. You're not experimenting anymore. That's a very good point at which you pivot and say, now we need to engineer and right. not build prototypes. Mm -hmm. um, and this doesn't apply for a company. It could apply to different parts of a company. Because mm -hmm. just within a company, you might have different parts moving at different speeds. Mm -hmm. You might have one group experimenting with a new idea. And sure, they're going to use 
every hack in the book to, to get their prototype out there and prove something. But the moment they've proven it, and the moment we commit to saying, yes, that is actually something worthwhile doing, it's at that point that you sit and re-engineer it and say, okay, now we're going to, now, now this is here to stay, so we're now going to build it properly. Right. Versus tack on more stuff on top of it. Is it a difficult thing to, to enforce it? Um, it depends. So in a place like Square, we don't really have a culture of enforcing. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's a very flat organization. Mm -hmm. um, it's very much, uh, you need to convince your peers that it's a good thing to do. Yeah, we don't really have a top-down structure. So that does make it hard, you're right. Mm -hmm. But also at the same time, not really. It, 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 it helps, I mean, uh, there are lots of smart people here, lots of thought leaders who all want to do the right thing. And having them all agree and converge in the right idea in the right direction automatically means that the right things happen. Mm -hmm. Now the hard part is to get everyone to agree what the right thing is. So some yeah. of the details might get lost. But as long as if anyone, if, if everyone's generally pulling in the same direction, yeah, you're usually pretty good. Very good. Um, let's talk about failure. Mm -hmm. Where have you, where have you failed as an engineer and also as a as a leader? Where have I failed as an engineer? <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting one. Uh, don't. Well, I mean, you know, individual projects. It doesn't have to pertain salary. to what you're doing here at Square. It sure, also pertains sure. to things outside. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Or individual in projects have obviously gone sour at times, and um, there's some spectacularly fun bugs that have gone into production. But uh, yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, the one with there's, there's one surefire way not to have any bugs out there in production. That's not to write any code. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that doesn't happen, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, I don't know. There's nothing in particular that I'd like to single out. Um, I suppose I suppose at Red Hat with Infinispan, um, we did, but this is more product direction than um, actual code per se, mm -hmm. where I think we were chasing the wrong thing for a period of time. What, what, what was the uh, Infinispan product? Oh, sorry, yes, I should, I should mention. Infinispan is an open source data grid, a distributed data grid mm -hmm. that we built at Red Hat um, and primarily used by the finance industry. Mm -hmm. uh, Anyone who cares about extremely high throughput and extremely fast... High performance yeah. data group, right? Okay. Correct, correct. And, and a distributed state across multiple JVMs. It was Java-based. Yeah. Um, and I guess one area where we kind of went in the wrong direction there was we were trying to chase... Um, trying to become a, a full NoSQL database and adding querying and things like that mm -hmm. to it and persistence. And, and the reality of it was it really wasn't designed to be a NoSQL database. It was designed to be an in-memory data grid first and foremost. Right. And we squint really hard. They kind of start to look the same, but they really solve very different problems. So it would have been better if we had carved it out as a separate thing, solving a very different problem. And focused on was the problem the, the product... Direction, or was it was the was it the community's embrace of the solution itself? Um, I think product direction really. I think that there are better designs for NoSQL databases, mm -hmm. um, whereas this was not designed as one, and then we tried to make it one by kind of forcing it into a different mold. Right, I see. Yeah, which, and that's never a good idea. Okay, all right. Uh, what was the motivation to uh, join Square as opposed to joining an early stage startup? Um, I I liked where Square was, well, what stage it was at. It had proven a product. It had found product market fit with its core uh, payments processing. Mm -hmm. um, and it had a few other products that it was developing, moonshots, experiments, which um, some of which have been proven now, some which are still very experimental. And mm -hmm. I liked the fact that Square could be a mature company and a startup at the same time. Right. And that was very appealing to me. 
you'll you be able to see different stages of growth within the same company. But also very interesting engineering challenges or engineering organizational challenges is how do you build an engineering org that spans both types of companies in the same company. Right. That's kind of cool. Very good. Okay. Um, how do you believe that trading solutions like microservices, uh, serverless architecture and containers will really impact the development lifecycle? Mm-hmm. Um, I think serverless architectures are brilliant. It's very, very cool things. It's something that uh, we're experimenting with a little bit here. I'd okay. like to see that go a little bit further. Um, Which ones? Well, just, just the concept, rather, as opposed to any particular implementation. Mm-hmm. The fact that you would have everything as a discrete function, every piece of business logic as a discrete function, um, executed somewhere by some runtime, mm-hmm. and you just connect them via pipes. Something that look like Unix pipes, but in reality implemented using I don't know, some messaging system like Kafka or something. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, so that's something that we're still experimenting with. I think that's got an interesting future. I'd like to see where that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but regarding microservices, so that's something we embraced quite early on, like I said. Yeah. Um, mostly due to due to some Google DNA at Square, so a lot of ex-Googlers were involved in the early engineering efforts at Square mm-hmm. and built up that infrastructure accordingly. Um, that has led to some interesting open source work as well. Mm-hmm. So we started out building an internal uh, RPC mechanism mm-hmm. called, called Sake, which is, if you're familiar with Google's um, RPCs, they have something called, called Stubby. It's an, it's an internal Google thing mm-hmm. and handles all of their uh, all of their RPCs. So we built we built Saki. It kind of looks and feels similar to Stubby. Uh, they use protocol buffers as messages and as service endpoints. Um, and at one point we were about to open source Saki. We got to a point where it was like you know there's no reason why this has to be internal. There's nothing Square specific about Saki, and we mm-hmm. shouldn't be open sourcing it. It's polyglot. It's multi language. It worked on um, on Java, Go, uh, anything that protocol buffers were supported on, basically. We hadn't implemented it for everything yet, but uh, it had the possibility to do that. We were also in the middle of a big overhaul of Sake, moving our internal uh, threading threading libraries and things like that to, to Netty, and mm-hmm. basically rely on Netty to handle all of the uh, asynchronous networking on well, Sake. Why did you choose Netty? Um, Netty, Netty is is a very tried and tested, proven open source component that yeah. that handles um, a huge number of requests on on uh, huge number of network requests really really efficiently. And uh, in some early prototypes that we built, it was a lot faster than what we had, so it seemed like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to go to that. We're going to open source it, and we got wind of the fact that Google were doing something very similar that they were trying to open source uh, Stubby or mm-hmm. a version of Stubby or clean room rewrite of Stubby. Okay. So we ended up collaborating with them, and that's uh, where gRPC was born. So gRPC is now an open source RPC framework. It's built on, uh, it looks a lot, looks and feels a lot like Stubby and or Sake. It's yeah. built on protocol buffers, uh, support for 10 plus languages, um, mm-hmm. even on iOS and things like that. Um, the, the Java implementation is based on netting, makes heavy use of libi.io, uh, and and runs on HTTP2. Yes, that was the other thing. So it's based on HTTP2 as the underlying protocol, which is which is fantastic because you get all the good stuff of HTTP2, things like multiplexing over a single channel and things like that, mm-hmm. without actually having to write all of your low-level networking. Mm-hmm. Because you get, you get HTTP2 for free today on almost any platform. So you've got all of that stuff baked in, which is great. But also because it's a standard protocol, you have a lot of components <coughs> that will support it, even if they don't today. 
So things like proxies, routers, whatever, they, they know how to talk HTTP to. Mm -hmm. And you can, uh, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with that. Things like load balancers and stuff. You couldn't really do that if you were writing your own socket protocol. Or you'd mm -hmm. have to hack a lot of stuff on top of that if you were doing that. Very good. All right. Um, let's talk about productivity. Mm -hmm. What does the first hour of your, of your day look like when you <laughs> wake up? A lot of coffee. <laughs> How much are we talking? Uh, I'm a bit of a coffee fiend, so it okay. gets through like maybe three, four cups a day. Uh, but That's not a lot of coffee. Yeah, you think not? Six is a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not Three or bad. four sounds familiar. Yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not the, the level of six then. Okay. Uh, but yeah, no. Um, it, it's basically that. I manage two teams here. Oh, hold um, on. You wake up in the morning, you go right to the coffee machine? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> wow, all right. What, what time do you wake up? Uh, I tend to be a bit of a late starter, but yeah, usually by about eight. Wow, seven. eight o'clock, okay. Yeah, I, I know that California is, is uh, uh, t California tends to be an early start culture. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't quite embraced that yet. I'm more of a night owl, so mm -hmm. yeah. All right, uh, eight o'clock, you go for the coffee machine, do you have anything for breakfast? Yeah, I tend to just have uh, muesli, yogurt, like a fairly light breakfast. I tend not to so, so. big the big cooked breakfasts very much. Okay, all right. Uh, how do you create an environment around you in order to get things done? Um, I, like I said, I manage two separate teams here at Square. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm fairly close to both of them. I mean, I'm actually friends with a lot of people on both those teams, which means we end up having lunches together, we end up having beers together after mm -hmm. work, and I think that creates a really tight, close-knit bond that yeah. really helps. Um, I can trust them implicitly with pretty much anything that that's around. because of the time that you spend outside of the office? Um, I, I, I'm, it's a bit chicken and egg. I'm not sure which came first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it kind of it, it evolves into a place like that. Okay. We end up forming that level of trust where I can pass on pretty much anything to anyone and I know it'll be done right. Okay, um, got it. They cover for me when I'm not around. I don't yeah. worry about that. It doesn't stress me out. Mm -hmm. I think that's good. Um, I let them make their own decisions, own their own destinies. Mm -hmm. That really helps. So you know, they have trust in me, I have trust in them. It's both ways. Right. What are the conditions in order to, if you could reverse engineer that, what are the conditions in order to build that, that, that uh, kind of trust? Um, I don't know. I think it's, I'm very selective about who I work with, I guess. So that's probably mm -hmm. the starting point. It happens quite organically. If I like the person I'm working with, then that, that environment sort of happens. Right. Okay. Over time. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, do you have any kind of a routine that you follow? Um, I tend to follow a fairly strict routine outside of work. Mm -hmm. So I climb a lot, I'm a climber, I'm a mountaineer. Um, that sort of defines the rest of my life, if you will. Okay. So with my What regular, kind of climbing are we talking about? Like uh, alpine climbing? Oh, yes. I've done a lot of alpine work. I've done a lot of um, um, ice climbing, winter, winter climbing, but also just old-fashioned nice. rock climbing. I mean, you know, in the summers, I just thoroughly enjoy you know, scaling up big rocks. Wow, it's okay. a lot of fun. And uh, what were some of the the most memorable places that you've climbed so far? The most memorable, I mean, Yosemite Valley, of course, and that, that sort of fed into my reason for moving to San Francisco as well, proximity to places yeah. like Yosemite Valley, um, or even like short trips away to like Red Rocks in, in Nevada, mm -hmm. or the Rockies in, in Colorado and things like that. Mm -hmm. But even when I was in Europe, I mean, flying to the Alps was, was my local playground. Wow, okay. Uh, from London to Switzerland is an hour-long, very cheap flight. Wow. And perfectly feasible for a long weekend. Incredible. Yeah. Which, which part of the Alps in Switzerland did you uh, climb? 
Uh, mostly in the Italian and French sides. Okay. I spent most of my time there. Yeah. I've climbed a little bit on the German side, but not a whole lot. I, I, I climbed in uh, Stubai once. It was, it was fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Very good. Okay. Uh, any other personal interests that you have outside of coding and, and uh, mountaineering? <laughs> Uh, too many, far too many. <laughs> like what? We got into acro yoga for a while, and that was a lot. Of it's fun. really hot right now, isn't it? It's it's hot, but it's a lot of fun. It's it's great. Um, but okay. just trying to find the time again is tough. Trying to find the time to fit it into the overall schedule. Let's talk about that. How do you how do you how do you make time for all these things? Well, you can't. I mean, I've had to give up a bunch of things. I used to drum. I used to play the drums quite a lot. The African uh, djembes, and okay. um, I haven't touched those drums for the last two years. Just haven't had the time to fit them in. All right. So um, how do you determine what is important to you today that you want to focus on? It's a feel. It's a feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you have a calling inside. So what, what do I want to give up today and, you know, what do I want to keep up? So, yeah. Okay. Uh, in the winter, I ski quite a lot. Uh-huh. So, again, trying to find the time to do that. I like to kind of divvy it up between <clears throat> sort of outdoor physical pursuits versus the rest. Mm-hmm. And I know that if I don't get outdoors at least a certain amount of time every month, I start to get grumpy, and that's no fun. <laughs> right, okay. So, okay, I need at least this many days outdoors every month. All right, so that kind of says, while I'm out there, I'd like to be climbing or something like that in the summers or skiing in the winters, things like that. So how does that look? Like it's a weekend, it's a week off every month? Yeah. Yeah, weekends? stuff like that. Long weekends? Uh, definitely long weekends. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely weekends. I mean, this weekend we're off to the Sierras again. Okay, very so, good. Uh, Skiing or uh, hiking? Oh, it's climbing. Sorry? A climbing weekend. Climbing, okay. Yeah, trying to get the last of the summer before it gets too cold. Right. Um, oh, great. And do you go by yourself? Do you go with friends? I've got a pretty pretty interesting community of people out here who mm-hmm. have similar interests. Okay. So, yeah. Very good. Uh, married? Yes, I am. All right, so how do you find time between having a, I'm sure, a very high-pressure schedule here at Square, mm-hmm. mountaineering, your wife, and whatever else happens on the weekends? How do you, how do, you do it? It's a tough one. I, uh, I wish she climbed. That's one thing I could say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she doesn't, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but yes, uh, apart from that, we do have a lot of overlapping hobbies and interests. Mm-hmm. That really helps. Uh, it also helps that she tends to travel a lot as well for work. Okay. Has a similarly high-pressured job, if you will. Right. So, um, so yeah, there are times when we kind of don't see each other for like a week or so, and then again, we do for quite a lot. Right. So okay. Things like that do happen as well. Um, is San Francisco an expensive place to live? Categorically, yes. There's <laughs> no other way to answer that question. Well, based on like the opportunities that you have to to earn, of course, mm-hmm. is it really that expensive? It depends. I think that if you are starting out in your career, it can be very tough. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're more established, if you've got a good job, it, it's less so. Uh, or if you're willing to put up with a long commute and you live further out of the city, it's less so. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to not like long commutes. I tend to find long commutes a waste of time, a waste of life, etc., etc. I, I, I know so it's enough to say that yeah. because um, I have an opportunity to not have a long commute, but. Um, mm-hmm. If you have to, that's what you have to do. And that's Your stuff. commute now is what, like? It's a short walk from here. I don't yeah. live very far from here. Um, if you were a aspiring engineer today, if you could go back in time to when you just came out of school, mm-hmm. and you could choose between uh, pursuing a career here in San Francisco or elsewhere, what do you think would be the right steps to take in order to make that decision? Um, I think it's kind of hard to say San Francisco or elsewhere. That's, that's kind of cause green. Uh, it's also kind of looking at the wrong things, I guess. Um, I tend to look at 
personally, I tend to look at the rest of my lifestyle first. And where does work fit in in that? Very good. So, okay. for example, I mean, there was a fairly long time I was contemplating moving to the Alps just because. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, there are interesting enough engineering companies in Switzerland, for example, and yeah. in Italy, which would have worked out quite well. It just happens to be that San Francisco worked just as well. Yeah. As well, I mean, so close to the Sierras and everything else. Mm -hmm. But um, I also think that uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of useful to think about where you want to work in, in terms of what sort of organization, what sort of company. Mm -hmm. If the startup life is what you're after, then absolutely, yes, San Francisco mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. Um, if you want to be, I don't know, if you want to work in distributed systems, um, quite often universities are a good place. Mm -hmm. or, but there are lots of other companies doing interesting work in distributed systems. Um, there's a little bit of a fallacy that, that startups have the toughest engineering problems. I actually don't believe that. Mm -hmm. I think most startups have the toughest business problems. There's lots of interesting innovation going on in, in product and business. Mm -hmm. Most of the engineering is just churn out another website or another app. And mm -hmm. if you're good at it and can churn out you know, stable, efficient apps, mm -hmm. yeah, sure. But it's not, I mean, if you're a computer scientist who wants to solve let's just say distributed systems problems, apart from a very small handful of, of companies in the Bay Area, there aren't many companies where you can do that. So true. And you're probably better off you know, becoming an academic or something like that. Mm -hmm. All right. So it depends on the motivation. I mean, you know, what, what, what do you want to do? If you want to solve distributed system problems, you go do that. If you, want to, if you want the startup experience, which is great as well, mm -hmm. in which case, yes, then maybe San Francisco is the right place. If you want to have an experience in a startup, is it better to come to, in your opinion, right? Like knowing that you have your own personal interests and you are, you set a, a, a direction for your lifestyle and you build the work environment around that. Sounds great. Is San Francisco the right place to pursue a career in a startup as opposed to like another like startup like uh, center, like a growing one these days? Absolutely. I mean, like I said, it depends. So, um, like Berlin, for example, is a fantastic place for startups. Mm -hmm. And if you're into the bohemian lifestyle and electronic dance music of Berlin, well, then yeah. that, that's where you should be, right? yeah, yeah. versus San Francisco. Uh, yeah. London's got a fantastic startup scene as well. Yeah. And um, I mean, that was, that was great because I love traveling around Europe. I mean, that mm -hmm. was something I was, there was an itch I was scratching at the time for myself. Yeah. And the ability to be able to get cheap flights and just an hour-long flight to pretty much anywhere in Europe mm -hmm. for every weekend based out of London, work for a startup in London, is fantastic. Very good. So, yeah. I mean, it really depends on what it is you're looking for. So. Okay. Uh, what areas in tech are most interesting to you today? Um, what areas in tech? I think that... I think that uh, AI is going to be very interesting. Now, I know there's a lot of hype around it and everyone's talking about yeah. it. Um, my well, very, very early background actually was in AI and neural mm -hmm. networks. Uh, very quickly gave that up and realized that you know it's many, many years too early. Um, but I like to see that happening again. I, I like in a specific it. direction or in, in an application to something specific? No, in absolutely everything. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the robots are going to take over and yeah. it's, it's fun to watch that happen. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's an absolutely good thing. I think it's a bad thing if it's going to if it's if it gets mismanaged and there will be bad like small bad things happening along the way, potentially big bad things as well. Mm -hmm. But I think that overall we will figure it out. What is like a major implication or bad thing you think that comes out of this? So a lot of people talk about uh, I mean the scary stuff the robots will kill us or something like that because they think we're useless yeah. I mean yeah that, that's for the sci-fi books and I'll leave that to the sci-fi books I, I don't believe in any of that uh, but I think that there is a huge um, 
I mean, there is a concern, a growing concern, that the robots will take away jobs and they will right. be better at it than most human beings and then human beings will be rendered useless. Now, that's a great thing. I actually want a machine to do all of my work for me. Right? Right. You get to sit on the beach and drink rum. That's fantastic. Right, right. But the reality of it is that unless society adapts to deal with a situation like that, what's mm-hmm. going to happen is the people who make the robots are going to make all the money mm-hmm. and everyone else is going to be dirt poor. Or and more like investors be, in the robot companies that absolutely. don't do anything. Just, well, that's kind of what I mean by the, the people who make <laughs> it's the investors at the end of the day. Right. And then you have income disparity increasing even more so. Right. But that will lead to a situation as well where, where societies <clears throat> are going to be forced to address that. I mean, people are already forced to address income inequality. It's mm-hmm. already a growing problem that's, that's, you know, getting, getting, it's coming to a head. It's going to hit a wall soon. Yeah. If if we have the situation that I just described, that would be an even worse forcing function. Mm-hmm. And I think the right things will happen. Whether we rethink how companies work, whether we rethink how wealth is distributed, is taxation the right vehicle anymore? Do we need something else? Yeah. Uh, and that's when you really get to enjoy the utopian society of go machines to do all your work and everyone can sit and drink rum. Yeah. Right? If that's your ideal goal, mm-hmm. how do we get there? And I think that's going to be an interesting space to watch. Okay. Uh, do you see any specific opportunities in, in AI that are really interesting right now? Um, there are there are lots of them. So I mean, a lot of the stuff that that like Google recently rebranded themselves as a machine learning company as opposed to a mobile company, writing yeah. mobile company, whatever. Uh, I think is interesting because because there's going to be a lot more focus on it. Mm-hmm. Everything from personal assistants through to just making smarter decisions because of greater knowledge and greater data mm-hmm. and a faster ability to compute that data. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, we're going to see a lot of changes across the board. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else you want to share? No, it's been a very interesting chat. Yeah, I loved it. Um, where can people find out more about you? So, um, I blog on Medium, not very often, mm-hmm. sometimes do. Mostly around Square-related things, but sometimes on the okay. as well. Uh, and if you go to, and my Twitter handle is at Manixfortime, so same Twitter handle on Medium, you'll find me there. Very good, we'll put it in the show notes. Cool. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Enjoyed Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening today. We'd love to hear what you think and, of course, how we can make it better. Talk to us on Twitter at DevIbeIO, that's D E V I B E I O. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at devvibe.io, where we keep you up to date on the latest releases and much, much more. Thanks.